0: This program is brought to you by the support of the members and donors to the show. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Le Show, The Young Turks, Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, The Rachel Maddow Show, and Real Time with Bill Maher, with a bonus video clip for our iPhone app users from The Colbert Report.
1: tell me you've got a battle plan that sounds like a battle
2: plan earlier i asked ray mavis the secretary of the navy yes <laughs> yes the navy maybe good man they're great at war they got the aircraft carriers the fighter jets what did you ask of the navy i asked ray mavis the secretary of the navy to develop a long-term gulf coast restoration plan as soon as possible
1: You know, they have bombs and did you know that <laughs> long term restoration plan? How do we go from we're locked in mortal combat with oil to what seems to be the minutes from a Wichita Falls City Council meeting? <laughs> I can't believe you preempted the new NBC show about the scary muscular lady who screams at fat people for this. <laughs> because I got to tell you something of the two of you. I'll tell you which one has a real battle plan. I need you to wrangle your family, get your gym clothes on. I have to push them. Give me all the condiments. All of them. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a garage sale. She form a commission? No, my friend. She walks in and she says, hey, lady, throw away all the in your house. And you know what? By the end of the hour, no more in the house. So this isn't really a war speech, is it? You're just starting off with the war metaphor. What is it you actually have to say?
2: We will do whatever is necessary to help the Gulf Coast and its people recover from this tragedy.
1: Oh, okay, alright. So this was really a speech uh, in the prime time of the nation in the Oval Office to give us an update. A <laughs> little reassuring, classic Obama. It's cool.
2: <laughs> Everything's under control. Tonight, we pray for that courage. We pray for the people of the Gulf, and we pray that a hand may guide us through the storm towards a brighter day.
1: What the f- was that? <laughs> We're all gonna die. I thought you just did the whole thing. I got this. It's okay. I got a commission. Everything is gonna be fine. May God have mercy on our souls. <laughs> I mean, if this is a commission-based administrative problem, what's with the freaky talk? Uh, Maybe you're trying to win over, you know, more of the Fox Nation people. At least they go for
2: that sort of thing.
3: The president's use of religion not setting well with everybody.
4: Some people are analyzing that this morning as saying it was disingenuous coming from a president who does not go to church on a regular basis.
1: Boy, you just really hate this guy, don't you? (laughs) Gretchen came and what's with his flag pin? Using our national symbol as jewelry. Well, that's an insult appealing to god for help with the oil spill and fox was really mad about it where did obama even get the idea to do that roll fox and friends clip from the day before the speech
4: i would have liked to have seen him gone to church yesterday i don't know it was sunday and it might be a good idea to ask for a little divine intervention about how the heck we're gonna fix this whole leak. <laughs>
1: But only if he does it in a church on a Sunday. If he does it from the Oval Office on a Tuesday. That's the devil's work.
5: <laughs> I never take my time. A friend of the devil is a friend of mine. If I get home before daylight, just might get some sleep tonight. I ran into the devil. Bills. I spent the night in Utah In a cave up in the hills sit down out running but I take my time A friend of the devil is a friend of mine If I get home before daylight Just might get some sleep tonight
6: From CPR, Continental Public Radio, The President's Weekly Address. Now, from the President's Address, the President. I just finished a half-hour telephone conversation with the British Prime Minister, or, as he would now like to be called, the Prime Minister, lest further anti-British sentiment be whipped up. During that conversation, he stressed to me the economic importance of the company formerly known as British Petroleum. I stressed to him in response the necessity for appearing to keep America's boot on that company's multinational neck. I told him that the American people have made it clear that they want their president to express their anger over this unprecedented environmental catastrophe. Earlier this week, you may have seen me in a television interview with Matt Lauer. He asked me if it was time for me to kick some butt. I responded that I was consulting with experts to find out the right asses to kick. That's the kind of response you can expect from your president as this crisis goes forward. Whenever strong language is called for, I will meet and exceed that call. But it's not just words that the American people expect at this time of ecological and economic disaster. It's action. That's why I'm going back to the Gulf Coast once again this week. My fourth visit in just over a month. While there, I will repeat my message to all responsible officials. Plug the damn leak. In case they don't grasp that clear message, I stand ready to use a stronger adjective than damn. If and when I do so, you will, if you choose, be the first to know. It's important for you, the American people, to understand just how angry I am about this mess and have been since day one of my anger. I'm angry enough to impose a six-month oil drilling moratorium on a state whose fishing industry has already been crippled so we can take all the time we need to get past the midterm elections. I'm angry enough to throw this decorative BP paperweight right down on the floor. And as Prime Minister Cameron now appreciates, I'm angry enough to continue calling BP British Petroleum. Thanks, and have a good week. Funds for this broadcast came from the Funds for This Broadcast Fund. This is CPR Continental Public Radio.
7: And
8: you're seeing that you're just kidding me
3: Feds have opened up a criminal probe of uh, the Gulf oil spill. And uh, Eric Holder says we will closely examine the actions of those involved in the spill. If we find evidence of illegal behavior, we will be extremely forceful in our response. There might be civil and criminal uh, liability here for BP, among others. In, about time, I mean, after all of this, finally the Justice Department roars a little bit. Do I even believe them? Only partially if i think if it serves their political purposes they'll huff and puff uh you know she, I, I am with the obama administration i'm in a state of show me okay because yeah i know it's a nice little statement you put out oh no no you don't understand we're really going to get bp i'm sure you are uh meanwhile of course the republicans as always worse what's david vitter up to uh well he's running in louisiana which is now uh, you know, being overrun by this oil that's in their marshes, that's in their water, that's killing their local fishing industry, among other things. So the two things he's done is he's called for expanded oil drilling. Okay, of course, of course. <laughs> you leave it to the Republicans to the double down. We made a mistake. Oh yeah, we'll do it again, and we'll do it even bigger next time. Uh, but if that weren't crazy enough, uh, he's saying, you know what? Um, he's for a liability cap for, on BP. So he just wants to make sure that BP is protected and that they don't pay too much, that if they have any liability, that it be capped at a certain number. So the poor BP doesn't have to people pay the people of Louisiana who they bankrupted. Louisiana, that's your senator. Now, you like him supporting BP over your local interests? Why on earth would you be in favor of David Bitter? Why on earth in the next election would you vote for a guy like that? All David Miller wants to do is drill baby drill whether it's his hookers or for oil that's going to cause disasters off the coast of Louisiana. You want to keep letting him drill and pretend that he's for family values and pretend he's for you while he takes all that money and puts it in his pocket and uses it on hookers.
6: Unpacking the bags and up planted lilacs and but a car.
0: You can support this podcast at no additional cost yourself when you shop at Amazon through a special widget posted at bestoftheleft.com. You can use the widget to search for what you're looking for, or simply click through and shop the site normally. Better yet, click through on the widget once and bookmark that page to use every single time you shop. By doing this, Amazon will donate around 7 or 8% of the cost of your order to support this show without adding a dime to your bill. It's very little effort on your part, but can make a huge difference to support the show. Check out the widget on the right side of bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
1: Sixty-two of this bill louisiana remains a state under siege yesterday the state senate finally took action They could turn this whole thing around
6: Today has been designated a statewide
3: day of prayer across louisiana Now according to that resolution it says thus far efforts made by mortals to try to solve the crisis have come to no avail It is clearly time for
6: a miracle for us
1: Louisiana, mortals only get 60 days to solve problems. After that, let's call God. All right, well, let's check in and see how he's doing. No! God! And the Lord said unto his people, oh, uh, have you tried a large cement dome, or? Maybe, maybe you could shoot some golf balls and trash into the leak and try and stop it, up uh, oh, you tried that, well, uh, uh, if you'll excuse me, I believe there's a 12-year-old girl in Tulsa who would like boobs and a cell phone, and I'm mulling it over right now. So I'm, I'm just gonna be going and do the, you know, actually, the oil is under a mile of seawater and another two and a half miles of solid sediment earth, so, I think God's done enough to prevent these spells. He buried it so far under the thing. A spider doing push-ups. On a mirror. What do you do when mortals and gods don't have the solution to the problem? Money. Recently minted mortal Barack Obama got BP to put $20 billion in an escrow account to pay back all those impacted by the disaster. Good news for almost everybody.
9: The president and I disagree on this escrow fund. There's a misreading of the Constitution and a misunderstanding of jurisdictional limits from this White House. Now it seems that it's all about
1: extortion. Yeah, you broke it, you bought it is not extortion. Just like give a penny, take a penny is not stealing or philanthropy. You know what I'm saying. Haley Barber, Governor of Mississippi, you have the most to gain from this money?
9: It bothers me to talk about causing an escrow to be made, uh, which will which makes it less likely that they'll make the income that they need to pay us. <laughs>
1: How are they going to pay us if they already done paid us? <laughs> you know, that's, that's not circular logic. That's circle-jercular logic. Extra! <laughs> Extra! Mm. Big bad Obama extorts private industry. It had become a go-to Republican talking point endorsed by the Republican Study Committee. They count 114 congressmen as members. And last Wednesday, blasted the escrow fund as, quote, Chicago-style shakedown politics. As you know, Chicago-style shakedown politics, it's like regular shakedown politics, except just as you're about to get your money, Steve Bartman f*** it up for you. (laughs) Turns out... (laughs) I do feel badly. You know what? I can just imagine right now, Steve Bartman sitting in a bar going, Really, dude? (laughs) Haven't we been over this? Can I have my life back? Turns out the Republican Steve Bartman is Congressman Joe Barton.
4: I think it is a tragedy of the first proportion that a private corporation can be sub- subjected to what I would characterize as a shakedown. So I apologize.
1: Yeah, shakedown, right? Dr. B- I nailed it, right? Apologized, to everybody, right? Any, what, guys? I mean, other congressional Republicans? The statement
7: that uh, Representative Barton made was
4: wrong. I think that was a dumb statement. I couldn't disagree with Joe Barton more. And he certainly was not speaking for me.
9: The congressman only spoke for himself. That is not mainstream Republican thought.
1: Anymore. (laughs) It it wasn't mainstream Republican thought. It was was a fringe Republican thought. He was quoting a memo put out by two-thirds of your caucus. At least old Haley Barber will stand up for him.
9: I don't think what he said was accurate because I think the way this worked out was it was dividing it up into $5 billion a year instead of $120 billion lump sum. I think actually is a fair good deal for everybody.
1: So making BP pay for the Gulf of Mexico is wrong. Making BP put the Gulf of Mexico on layaway. That's how it's supposed to work. Michelle Bachman, will you stand by him? You said this fund was against the Constitution, and you used the word extortion. You gotta love what Barton did. No one is saying that this fund shouldn't be set up. You were saying that! <laughs> Congresswoman Michelle Bachman was saying that. In fact, she was saying it three days. Am I the only one of the two of us who listens to what you say? <laughs> Meanwhile, the only person having a worse couple of days than Joe Barton is the guy he apologized to, BP CEO Tony Hayward. I wonder where he was hiding out this weekend.
9: A man who looked a lot like BP chief Tony Hayward sailing Hayward's boat in a yacht race off the coast of England.
1: So, now he's into wind power. I listen to the wind, to the wind of my soul. Where I'll end up, well, I think only God really knows. I've sat upon the setting sun, but never,
9: never,
1: never, never, never. I never wanted
9: water once, and no, never, never, never. never.
1: listen to my words, but they fall, far below.
9: Carl, I see somebody else has come into detention. What does he have to write
6: on the chalkboard? I will never again leave the scene of a disaster my company caused for a yacht race (laughs) unless it is a really good yacht race.
9: So that was the head of what infamous company who decided that what he really needed to relieve his stress was to take in a yacht race. Oh, that's got to be Tony Hayward from BP. Yes, exactly right. You know his name. He's the CEO of BP. He's the guy who famously complained about, quote, wanting his life back after his company turned the Gulf of Mexico into an enormous jiffy lube. He decided to relax by attending a yacht race in Britain. When asked how he could do such a thing, he said, well, if you want to talk about witnessing disasters, my yacht came in fourth. After the yacht race, Hayward said he'd soon be back on the scene managing things in the Gulf right after the International Convention of Monocle Wearers. <laughs> <laughs> he has to lead an Ascot symposium there. And he's going to participate in the annual butler toss.
4: An <laughs> Ascot.
5: Come on,
3: skinny it just let us sing it. It's There are at the same
2: mobilization of this speed and magnitude will never be perfect, and new challenges will always arise. I saw and heard evidence of that during this trip. So if something isn't working, we want to hear about it. If there are problems in the operation, we will fix them.
8: Oh, pick me, pick me, pick me. Problems you want to hear about? There's plenty about the response to the BP oil disaster that is not working. And today, the CEOs of Exxon, Chevron, Shell Oil, ConocoPhillips, and BP America heard about some of those problems from Congress. All of those executives from the top five oil companies in the country were summoned up to Capitol Hill today to answer for what their industry has wrought in the Gulf. It ended up up being one of those oddly satisfying days of congressional hearings when the stuff that ought to get asked actually gets asked asked, stuff like, hey oil industry executives, why exactly are you still using technology from the 1960s to clean up a spill in the 2000s?"
5: Now another picture, a picture I'm very familiar with, a picture of the boom used in the Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969. That was about the era of the rotary telephone. Now here's a picture of the boom used in the Gulf today, 40 years later. Do you see a big difference between the boom technologies used in these two pictures?
9: I I don't see a big change in boom technology. There have been tremendous changes in technology and how boom is deployed and how satellite imagery helps deploy resources into the best possible places.
5: Yes, we do have satellite imagery now. But that was the era of the rotary telephone. We now live in the era of the iPhone. See, according to BP, it's okay
8: to use 1960s era technology because now, because we have satellites and stuff, we're better at knowing where to put our 1960s era technology. That's like if we were still driving Ford Pintos and Corvairs that exploded on impact. But now, Ford Pintos and Corvairs have OnStar in them. So when they blow up, we know exactly where to find the smoldering wreckage. This current disaster obviously happened specifically to BP, but one of the things that has emerged pretty clearly since is that it could have easily happened to any of the big five oil companies that testified today at least, including, say, ExxonMobil. ExxonMobil CEO Rex Tillerson was grilled by Congressman Bart Stupak today about his company's claim that they can handle a spill as large as 166,000 barrels per day.
5: If
4: you can't handle 40,000, how are you going to handle 166,000 per day as you indicate? The answer to that is when these things happen, we are not well equipped to deal with them. So when these things happen, these worst case scenarios, we can't handle them, correct? We are not well equipped to handle them. There will be impacts, as we are seeing. When they happen, It is a fact that we're not well equipped to prevent any and all damage. There will be damage occurring.
8: There will be damage occurring. We need to freeze frame. Stop this, stop with this. Leave that guy there. This is one of those moments. This is important. Append this to every deep water drilling application. Append this to every complaint about the deep water drilling moratorium. Append this to every politician who says that what we really ought to be doing is continuing to drill. Here it is again, here's the oil industry, here's the CEO of ExxonMobil, admitting they have no idea what to do when things go wrong.
4: When these things happen, we are not well equipped to deal with them. We are not well equipped to handle them. There will be impacts, as we are seeing. When they happen, it is a fact that we're not well equipped to prevent any and all damage. There will be damage occur.
8: While it is comforting to hear the oil industry admit out loud to what we've all been seeing the evidence of, it is, again, cold comfort to the people who have to live with the consequences of that horrible truth. Those are the people in all the coastal communities who are now watching the oil in the Gulf of Mexico surge toward them. The people who are trying to figure out on their own how they can try to save their communities because they effectively are on their own at this point. What's happening in these Gulf Coast cities and towns right now is an ad hoc invent things as you go, let's play MacGyver, desperate, locally driven, invent your own salvation effort to try to keep the oil offshore. It's people in these communities essentially having to come up with something, anything to try to prevent the oil from ruining their land and their livelihoods. We have been trying to give this admittedly local story some national attention on this show. Today, there was a big article about it in the New York Times about what the Times described as chaotic efforts to contain and clean up the oil in the water. I'm hoping that maybe that big article and some of what's been going on in Congress will help give this part of this story some more national gumption in terms of the coverage. But up until now, this, this innovate on the fly effort has received the most coverage and the most in-depth coverage at the local level, at local news, at local news affiliates. And there ha- has been some truly amazing local coverage. Check, check some of this out.
2: In Jefferson Parish, leaders are going ahead with the plan to use barges to stop oil from entering Barataria Bay. The plan is to use barges and rocks to close off these five entrances into the bay and its estuaries.
3: Sixteen barges have already arrived, with at least 100 more expected by next week. Area leaders hope to sink them alongside one another at major passes where Gulf waters flow into coastal Louisiana. Orange Beach is taking matters into its
7: own hands to protect Perdido Pass.
3: To protect Perdido Pass, crews are now working on a $4.6 million steel pipe boom plan. It's a 36-inch pipe filled with foam,
9: so it will float. It has a a vein on the top of about 18 inches. It has a keel on the bottom of about 18 inches. So it will afford us about three
3: feet, 2.5 to 3 feet of protection from the top of the surface. It's rigid so that it
9: will stay in place. A new tool was hitting the beach in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Sand sifters usually clean beaches of cigarette butts and bottle caps, other debris like that, but now they're being used for oil. The machines pick up oil-soaked sand, sift it, and leave behind clean sand. The machines have been used to clean up oil in Saudi Arabia, but this is the first time they've been used on
8: American soil. Sand sifting, never been used before here. Sinking barges to be physical barriers against oil. Steel boom that they're inventing, testing and deploying. These are local mayors, local councilmen, county officials trying to do the work right now that the oil industry hasn't done since the 1960s. Since, as Lois Cap said, there were rotary phones. This unsafe industry, which has created these disgusting messes, have basically said to local communities, you guys are on your own. You figure out how to prevent our oil from destroying your town. We're working on oil, other stuff, and and, and counting our money. This isn't just shortfalls in technology, either. What's going on in these local communities is also the result of BP not caring enough to use the technology that does exist the right way. Today, officials in Pensacola, Florida, reported that the booming effort set up to keep the oil out of Pensacola Bay failed. Quote, oil has been able to get past a large V-shaped boom stretched across the pass. Booming isn't great. Booming is old technology, but booming done right, done professionally and carefully, and tended well, which takes a ton of manpower, should have been able to protect Pensacola Bay. In the current setup we have in this country, the oil industry has everything going in their favor. They get all the gains, all the profits from this incredibly lucrative industry. And the risk is always ours. It's our American beaches that get doused in oil. It's our American marshes that get ruined when something goes wrong. It's our American industries that get destroyed when the places where people make their livelihoods are polluted and made toxic. So for us citizens, us non-oil executive citizens, those of us who don't profit from the oil industry, big disasters like the Exxon Valdez, the Ixtoc, the Buzzards Bay spill in Massachusetts, the Prudhoe Bay spill in Alaska, the seven spills after Hurricane Katrina, all of the spills after Hurricane Ivan, the spill in Salt Lake City this past weekend. For those of us who don't profit from this industry, these are big deals. These are sort of landmark events in terms of our relationship to oil. But get this, this is something that I learned today watching the congressional hearing that I did not expect to learn. For oil industry executives, even the biggest accidental blowout ever, 140 million gallons of oil spilled into the Gulf of Mexico, even Ixtoc—even even that is apparently not a big deal when they think about their own industry. It's not part of what they've learned about oil and oil companies and drilling. It's not something that they talk about. It's not a term they're familiar with. It's apparently, if you're the head of an oil company, if you're the CEO of an oil company, it's apparently something you've never even heard of before.
4: I was reading an article about a well referred to as
0: I-X-T-O-C-1 which I think was back in 1978 or 79. Are any of you familiar with the history of that particular well blowing
2: in the Gulf? Any of you aware of the facts of that?
8: Yeah, we didn't edit that to take away the sound. That's them, they just blank stares all around. So if you're counting on the the oil industry to self-police in response to big disasters, You just look at the blank, unknowing faces on these guys and tell me that you're still counting on them. An enormous disaster like Ixtoc is apparently not something that gets discussed in oil executive circles. The fact that they spill oil disastrously doesn't even register on the radar for these guys in terms of what they do. And this is why we have government regulation. We care because it's our land, our sea, our country that they're destroying. In the oil industry, these disasters apparently don't even don't even make a wave. They don't even register.
0: I love hearing from listeners who write in to tell me about how this show positively impacts their lives. It reinforces the idea that what I'm doing really may be making a little bit of a difference. What I love even more is that it's the support of the listeners themselves which makes this show possible. If you appreciate the service this show provides, you can make individual donations or become a member and donate $5 a month, or even save a couple of bucks by paying for a year in advance. Member support gives me the time it takes to produce 10 shows per month, and in return, members receive access to bonus audio and video content through members-only raw feeds. For details or to sign up, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Thanks so much for your support.
6: An investigation of minerals management service employees in Lake Charles, Louisiana, found a widespread culture, its culture, of accepting gifts from oil companies, including hunting and fishing trips, Christmas parties, and even free tickets to see LSU beat the University of Miami in the Peach Bowl, according to a report released this week by the Department of Interior's Inspector General. The report also found 13 employees in MMS offices in New Orleans and Lake Charles were using federal email accounts to receive or forward pornographic images and links to pornographic videos. And at least two employees in the Lake Charles office were using drugs. Aside from that, all the actions took place before 2007, according to Acting Inspector General Mary Kendall. That's what she said. This is well before the new Interior Secretary's recent shakeup of the Trouble Department and the imposition of stringent new conflict of interest rules. In 2008, a similar Inspector General report found officials in the since-disbanded Royalty-in-Kind program where oil companies could pay the federal government in oil for their royalties instead of dollars. In Denver and Washington, accepted improper gifts, used cocaine and marijuana, and had sexual relationships with oil and natural gas company representatives. A troubled agency. Troubled. The uh, Inspector General... Report adds to the growing portrait of minerals management service as corrupted by injury, by industry, (laughs) adding injury to industry. Many inspectors, the inspector general found, were already friends with industry officials. Some had worked in the oil and gas business before their stand in government and would go back to industry again. Revolving door, anyone? One official inspected four platforms owned by one company at the same time he was negotiating for a job at that firm. The result, regulations that often looked less than rigorous, except to critics of government regulation. Oh, they're so onerous. Ouch! One confidential source told investigators that service inspectors let the oil and gas companies fill out their own inspection reports in pencil. Then the inspector would trace over their writing in ink. There's more. The Federal Agency Minerals Management Service repeatedly ignored warnings from government scientists about environmental risks in its push to approve energy exploration activities quickly, according to numerous documents and interviews. Minerals Management Service officials can receive cash bonuses in the thousands of dollars based in large part on meeting federal deadlines for leasing, oil and gas, exploration. So they frequently change documents and bypass legal requirements aimed at protecting the environment. This has dramatically weakened the scientific checks on offshore drilling that were established by the law. It's a war between the biologists and the engineers, says Tom Campbell, who worked at NOAA's NOAA's general counsel under President Bush. They just have a very different worldview, and sometimes the engineers simply don't listen to the biologists. Interviews and documents seen by the Washington Post show numerous examples in which senior officials discounted scientific data and advice, even from scientists elsewhere in the federal government that would have impeded oil and gas companies drilling offshore. This is under both the Bush and Obama administrations. Hello? Red flags raised by scientists at NOAA and and the Marine Mammal Commission, and the MMC, have gone unheeded. Obama officials say they're taking steps to ensure that science guides drilling decisions. Formerly, agency officials say such questions are rarely as simple as they seem. In 2006, then-MMS biologist Jeff Childs wrote a detailed analysis of how the Exxon Valdez oil spill, Valdez, had harmed generations of fish. But his conclusion that a large oil spill is likely to result in significant adverse effects on local fish populations requiring three or more generations to recover would have forced the MMS to conduct a full environmental impact statement before auctioning off a lease in Alaska. So they didn't. When it approved BP's 2009 plan to start the exploratory well that's now spewing, the federal agency that oversees oil drilling, MMS, assumed there would be little risk of a well blowout and likely no death to marine life if an accident were to happen. BP estimated that in the worst case, a blowout would spew out 162,000 barrels of oil every day. That dwarfs the current estimates. But In its exploration plan in March 2009, BP assured the Federal Minerals Management Service, this is March 2009, current administration, that a well blowout was so unlikely that, quote, a blowout scenario is not required for the operations proposed, unquote. MMS then granted BP a, quote, categorical exclusion, unquote, from a public review of the potential environmental impact of the drilling.
1: You are by
5: design. And we just want sleep, but this night is hell. Sick and sunk, and I blame myself. Cause I make things harder, you were trying to help. I got no gas, it no wasn't out my
1: ears. This is one more day, I'm the verge of tears. And now my head hurts, and my health is a joke. And now I gotta stop, cause the headphones broke.
7: I have been holding my nose about this oil issue every week. I do not want to talk about it, and we do. But, you know, this is the last show of the season, my last time to vent. So I kind of had a change of heart this week. And this whole show might just be about how much oil sucks. <laughs> uh, and Because <the>, I, <laughs> I, I feel oily. I mean, now that those pictures come in of the, uh, the wildlife, I, you know, I feel I feel there's shit on me. I feel like someone from Greenpeace should scrub me down every night. And I guess the question I want to ask is that sometimes tragedies, uh, midwife, uh, something good, you know, uh, JFK got shot and they passed civil rights. What would have to happen for this tragedy to have some meaning? Because so far I don't see anything.
9: Yeah. You know, I, I was in New Orleans three or four days ago, and I was there back with Katrina two days afterwards and thinking terrible insult, assault, another assault. So first think New Orleans. Think that whole coast. But if you really step back, I think we do have to come as a nation around energy independence. What we can produce here, number one. And coupled coupled with that, which is the the, the really corollary to it, is is alternative fuels that we can't right. keep relying on these fossil.
7: Those are two de- very different things. When you say energy independence, to me that really means more drilling. Yeah, no, but that is, because that's why we are drilling and that's so much why you, in the ocean because we want our own more oil that we can control.
9: Yeah, but I would add that's not the same I, thing. I, as, I would add alternative. We'll think wind. We'll think solar. Right. We'll think electrical. But but, <laughs> but I would also I would also but I, I would also say nuclear. And I, I would also say the nuclear push, it, we need to think about it. We need to address it. In 12 years in the United States Senate, we never really addressed it. Okay. But it does, it, you know, we... That, I statement. link them. I link them. That, that statement. What? I link them.
7: Independent link alternative. Them. Oh, I thought alternative. Oh, I, I thought you were giving a shout-out to Allah. I link them. I link them. Queen Nora, where are you? We're giving a shout-out to Allah. Um, okay. Okay. Um, But that statement still says to me that number one is energy independence, i.e. more drilling, before we get to alternative to energy. And I think that's the problem, and that's why I think we're not really making this tragedy count.
8: We're trying to drill all of our oil, or a huge proportion of our oil, from the place where we get all our shrimp and oysters. And that's awkward. It turns out, right? Um, I mean, there's a, there's a town in in Louisiana that I was at in the last week that has a shrimp and petroleum festival every year. Uh, they haven't shrimp and petroleum same festival. They, it's scheduled for September. They haven't yet rescheduled it this year, but that's that's going to be difficult. Um, the, what I'm what I'm concerned about is that I think that if something is going to good something good is going to come out of this, it's going to be new ambition for the second part of what yeah. you said for the renewables. That we need to not just talk about energy independence and talk about, oh, let's double our wind power from 0.0001% to (laughs) 0.0002%. No, we need to actually reconceive it, get super ambitious about it, and decide that it's a really high priority for the country. And I'm worried that we're only going to do it on the
4: There are two words to answer this very specific question you ask. What will it take? It will take President Obama leave full stop it's uh we had a period between 1957 and about 1966 where we had three different presidents who led in the midst of crisis who made the country a better place sputnik in 57 eisenhower led that made possible the space program it made possible an enormous amount of technological progress kennedy and johnson on civil rights you know that was as as crisis-driven as it possibly could be, who were reacting in real time to the brutality of Southern lawmen, often televised images live, news pictures, and they did it. And they went from Selma, Bloody Sunday, in March of 1965, within two weeks, Johnson was proposing the Voting Rights Act, and it got passed. Right. He just took, seized the moment. And that's what we have not seen.
7: And unfortunately, this president... Um, as we all know, three weeks before the oil disaster, was coming out for more drilling. So I'd like to link that to the filibuster, because I know that's something that you had to deal with. But there were, Because I saw this week that Lindsey Graham is pulled out of the global warming bill. And the whole reason Obama was coming out for more drilling was as a sop to the conservatives, mm-hmm. to try to get Lindsey Graham on his side, somebody like that, to get a couple of Republican votes, which would not be necessary if we didn't have this filibuster nonsense, if you didn't need 60 votes to pass anything. That's why this president said something. That's why he had to lie, basically, and the lie was, drilling has never been safer. And we know for a fact, actually, drilling has never been more dangerous. Not just this spill, but before this spill. So, I mean, that's just a good example.
9: Of how that has corrupted no. our. So is it the filibuster, the drilling? So we'll move to the filibuster. And, and real quickly, it is interesting because throughout our history, we have. First of all, the filibuster means that we have 100 people in the United States Senate. So the threshold today is 60 votes, and that's sort of what we mean by filibuster. Filibuster, right. and you, you decrease it to 50 votes, a simple majority. Um, as as was designed. It was. Well, first of all, President Obama showed that he is willing to to bypass all that, which he did with health care, and basically just passed it with 50 votes. So you can do that. As he just designed. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't
7: know if he was bypassing
8: it. I don't think he was no. bypassing no. the Constitution.
9: No. I no. think no. he was following the okay. Constitution. So it can be done. And he can do the same thing on any of these issues. No, I mean, but, but, he's demonstrated. but
8: you have—you can only do that through a trick that says things have to it's be directly related to the budget, right? But it, Budget reconciliation, <laughs> you can't pass everything through that. But
9: this wasn't, this wasn't directly related to the budget, health care. But let's put that aside. It can be done. In the Senate, you can do anything, by the way. You can do anything that can be done. And, but let's move on. The Senate... Senate is, is the, the, the <laughs> period <province.
8: laughs> you, can, you can
9: do. You, Republicans
8: are filibustering everything. That's why it doesn't magically take 60 votes to do something. Every time they do that, it is a filibuster. And it's being used more frequently I, than I it's agree. ever been used in American history before. And Republicans should answer for that because it's a really stupid way to run the country. Okay. That's my family. I have Love a really it. big family and they're all here.
9: What, yes, what, yes. what? They're with you. Well, let me, I, I can tell you. <laughs> I, I heard it in the, in the introduction. Just screening bill. Bill. The, first of all, let me just say, real quick, in defense of our Congress, But over 200 years ago, we set up a House of Representatives, which is majoritarian rule, which is 50% or more, and that's sort of one branch of government. The balancing branch of government was set up with what is called primacy of the minority to empower the minority so the minority has voice and it's not just a majority vote overall. It's that balance of power that has really been in the United States Congress for over 200 years, and it's changed over time. Right now, the filibuster is at 60 votes. In the past, it's been up to to 70 votes. We could take it down to 50 votes or 55 votes. The danger is when you have one party who runs the Senate, who runs the House, runs the executive branch, and you rule it as straight majority control, the minority has lost voice. They've lost Nobody power.
8: wants to take away all the other dumb minority rules for the Senate in terms of individual holds and that sort of thing. Nobody wants to do that. People just want Republicans to not do something that's never been done in U.S. history before, which is put a filibuster on every single vote of consequence.
5: We
3: got more news on the BP disaster, uh, the Gulf oil spill. Uh, apparently, according to some Republicans, including Don Young, Republican of Alaska, says is actually not an environmental disaster. That's a direct quote from him. He says that uh this is not an environmental disaster and I will say that again and again because it's a natural phenomenon. Oil has seeped into this ocean for centuries. We'll continue to do it. Uh, during World War II there was 10 million barrels of oil spilt from ships and no natural catastrophe. We will lose some birds, we'll lose some fixed sea, sea life, but overall it'll recover. <laughs> okay. Yes, so for example, carbon dioxide is a natural gas that occurs in the world if you have a lot of it in one area it might be trouble uh carbon monoxide yeah that that happens if you have a lot of it in one particular garage you're going to die <laughs> okay and we understand that oil leaks in the oceans uh naturally it doesn't leak at this level non-stop see when it does if it leaks normally it doesn't cover all the animals for example and all the fish and it doesn't kill them all if it leaks at this level, it covers all of them and kills them all and is an ecological and environmental disaster. See, you got to explain it real slow to Republicans. They that they're a little slow. They're like, what? I thought there already was oil in the water. Oh, more of it makes a difference? Hmm. Now, Don Young's from Alaska, so being a little unfair by giving me a southern accent, being unfair to the south. So, my apologies. All right, now let's go on to other fun Republican reactions. Now, here's one thing I know about Republicans. They are for less government involvement, unless of course it means taking money from the federal government when they're in trouble. So, here we go. Usual cast of characters. Governor Bobby Jindal of Louisiana, uh Florida Attorney General Bill McCollum, Republican State Representative uh Stephen Palazzo from Mississippi. All of them Obama cares terrible government innovation. Get the government out of our business, Michelle Bachman. Get your hands off our health care. And now all of a sudden, Michelle Bachmann says that Barack Obama was too hands off, that he should, should have gotten the government involved much earlier. Here's Stephen Palazzo. This is not only an economic nightmare, but it's an ecological one as well. We cannot spare any resource. So gimme, 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 gimme. Jindal, who was like, "I don't want that stimulus money," now all of a like, "No, the government has to give all the money and make sure that the oil stops." Government, where are you? Government, government, I need you, please, step in and stop the oil and then give me a, uh, a lot of money in relief. What happened, to big guy? I thought you were for small government. Let, let the free market handle it. Let, you know, I'm sure that the the oil will voluntarily stop when it feels like it. As Don Young says, "It's already oil in the water, son." Okay, so good luck with that strategy Now, I will give credit to um uh, one guy, and that 's uh haley Barber he is not critic he 's a Republican that has been for drill, baby drill, et cetera he 's you know, governor of Mississippi. uh... Mississippi, but he has not criticized obama he 's at least being consistent he 's like no, no, I want the money. I think the government should be involved, and I think they should give it to us okay, so hey, look if you 're consistent that 's fair now does uh, have some of the other Republicans been consistent on this? Uh, well, they are consistent in a strange way. Governor Bobby Jindal and uh, uh, Louisiana uh, Senator uh, David Vitter are saying uh, that uh, Barack Obama is way too involved in saying that we should do a moratorium on deep, off-water, offshore drilling. Okay, So now, remember, the moratorium right now is you can't go under 500 feet for the next six months because we want to make sure that it's safe and Vitter and Jindal are saying no we need to drill baby drill and it's funny because i read a report in the new york times about how the oil lobby is going to fight this right the moratorium and one of the things they said is well we won't say that we want to make more money that would seem crass no we'll say that it's costing the local economy too many jobs and steps in Jindal and Vitter and what do they say the exact talking point that big oil gave them. They say, oh, we're worried that Louisiana uh, is gonna lose too many jobs because of this. No, we need to keep drilling. Uh and we need to drill longer and deeper. <laughs> I mean, they're they're unreal, man. So the government shouldn't protect us from the offshore uh, drilling. But if things do go wrong, don't worry, they do want to get bailed out. That's when they want the government to intervention.
9: That's the Republican sport. <laughs>
5: Let this be our
6: national goal. At the end of this decade, in the year 1980, the United States will not be dependent on any other country for the energy we need to provide our jobs, to heat our homes, and to keep our transportation moving.
8: President Richard Nixon addressing the nation in 1974. That national goal he laid out for the year 1980 has become our perennial, presidentially endorsed national goal ever since. Energy independence. The single most agreed upon issue in modern American politics, maybe. Everyone, left, right and center, wants energy independence for America.
2: One of the reasons I ran for president was to put America on the path to energy independence. To protect our energy prices at levels which will achieve energy independence.
4: We've gone from a position of energy independence to one in which almost half the oil we use comes from foreign countries.
7: We can't conserve our way to energy independence. By deregulating
9: oil, we've come closer to achieving energy independence.
7: It's time to get off this roller coaster ride and time to chart a new course to energy independence. We're going to have energy independence, and we're going to have it in 10 years, and we're going to achieve it. We must uh, declare our independence again, our energy independence.
2: I think uh, most people in America think that uh, our energy policy ought to have a goal of energy independence.
8: Want to know why the ever popular bipartisan, no dissent, all-American issue of energy independence is still a campaign slogan and not something that we've achieved? Even today, 36 years after Nixon declared it a goal to be accomplished 30 years ago, it's because it's not a real thing. At least not the way everybody's been talking about it for the past four decades.
7: A strong America begins at home with energy independence from the Middle East. We're going to stop sending $700
2: billion a year to countries that don't like us very much. It's going to stop. For the sake of our economy, our security, and the future of our planet, I will set a clear goal as president, in 10 years we will finally end our dependence on oil from the Middle East.
9: We will set this country
4: country firmly on a course towards energy independence.
8: From a totally nonpartisan standpoint, that is awesome campaign rhetoric. Awesome campaign rhetoric that is not related at all to how stuff actually works in the real world. Oil that is drilled here in America isn't just trucked down the road to mom and pop's made in America gasoline store where we can all do our patriotic duty and fill up our tanks with totally safe, domestically drilled, American only oil. It goes instead to a place called the international market where all the rest of the world's oil goes to, even the stuff from the Middle East. And that's where we buy it from. We don't buy American oil. We buy world oil, like everyone does. So when your friendly neighborhood politician tells you we need to drill more oil here at home so that we won't be so dependent on the Saudi Arabia or your bullpucky, your bullpucky dictator of choice, your bullpucky detector should be going off loudly. Because the thing is, oil companies are international companies. And the market for oil is an international market. And oil, is fungible, which means there's no such thing as our oil supply or the Middle East's oil supply. There's only the oil supply. It all goes to the same place and we have to buy it. We all buy it from that one world marketplace, which kind of makes you wonder what the great advantage of drilling more of it here at home is. If we know we're just gonna have to buy it back from the international market and these global corporations anyway. It can't be that we think it's safer to drill it here. And yet we are so desperate to send more of this country's oil to the international market that we're giving oil companies subsidies to the tune of billions of dollars to drill offshore in America, in the Gulf Coast, where we now know it's really not safe. If we were being smart about oil in this country, knowing that we have to buy it from the same place no matter what, wouldn't we want oil to be drilled in the safest way possible? And for America, sorry to be short-sighted here, but wouldn't that be not in our backyard? and not in the backyard of 40% of our nation's wetlands? There is of course a marginal risk associated with tankers, with transporting oil, using tankers. But frankly, honestly, that's not the argument anybody's making here. That's not the grounds on which people say, we need to be energy independent so we don't have to move the oil a far way. That's not the grounds on which domestic drilling is being promoted. The argument is that if we drill the oil here, we will have energy independence from other countries. And it's a well-meaning, good-hearted argument being made from all over the political spectrum. But it is not a well-thought-out argument. Energy independence is not the issue. The issue is dependence on oil, period. And it's an important distinction. Because we are at a point where we actually need to do something about our dependence on oil. And we can't do anything meaningful about it unless we change the grounds on which this argument is taking place. Unless we have the argument we should be having, we're capable of having. Which is an argument not about where and whether and how much oil we drill. It's about the fact that we use too much oil. If we're really truly gonna try to solve the energy crisis, the energy crisis we are actually in in this country, we need to be precise about what the crisis is. And that means ditching the platitudes and the speechifying about energy independence and admitting that the crisis is oil. It's not where we get oil or how we get oil, it's just oil. And an oil crisis cannot be solved by drilling more oil anywhere. If we as a country are ready to fire that one extra synapse and think seriously about the real problem at hand, the problem of oil and the fact that we need too much of it, then we can start talking about what we can do, what we're actually capable of doing to solve our oil problem. And then we can face up to what we're gonna have to sacrifice in order to do it. It's going to be a pretty painful conversation, but here's the thing, it's only gonna get more painful the longer we put it off.
0: Thanks for listening, everyone. I want to tell you right off the bat to please continue uh, bringing in those votes over at Podcast Alley. We're uh, trying a new experiment this month. Instead of just voting uh, for this show and trying to get us into the top 10, uh, I've teamed up with the fine folks over at the Blast the Right podcast, another great progressive podcast, and uh, as, as well as the Young Turks, who have also jumped into the Podcast Alley game. And so the point uh, this month is to not just get into the top 10, which all three of us have already done, but to actually get into the top three, three shows, top three slots. Uh, we all team up, try to get uh, as many votes as we can. And uh, we're at the point right now, like a couple hundred people jump in, vote for all three shows and we're there. So it's just a fun experiment to see if we can get progressives to get a little bit more exposure, a little bit more name recognition, get us up, uh, up in the top 3 slots there. And uh, and so it should be fun if it works out. This month, we'll probably continue and do it every month and uh, progressives will dominate. And and so it's all it's all up to you guys. So just head over to podcast alley, podcastalley.com of course, and uh, and right there in the top, in the top 10 list, you will see of course the young turks Last the right and best of the left podcast, all listed uh, in the top ten. Uh, assuming things are still going well when you hear this, and so just one by one, you can click through, vote on all of those. It's super simple, way easy. Secondly, I want to give you a little bit of a follow up on the the, dis- the uh, patriotism discussion that I started in the last episode. Uh, I was I, I got great responses and was a little surprised that they were. Almo- not quite, but almost universally positive, not, you know, not that I didn't think people would agree, but I thought there would be more dissenting views coming in. Um, maybe the people who dissent just didn't take the time uh, to write, but it was by and large, generally speaking, uh, a consensus. But I did, I, I wanted to uh, to throw in a couple of choice uh, quotes that, uh, that were sent in. So if you recall, this conversation got started by uh, uh, an audio clip I played this guy, Matt Rothschilds, the uh, editor of the Progressive Magazine. He went on a little one-minute spiel about how he was not patriotic, but in fact he was anti-patriotic, and he felt that uh, patriotism often leads to fascism, and so he wants nothing to do with it. I thought that was, you know, by and large, I agreed. It was a little bit over over the top, like I am not patriotic for different reasons than he gave. I don't feel the need to go and and play the fascism card, but um but that that was how all, all, all this got started. so using that as a springboard, I get to bring you this quote uh, speaking of over the top, uh, this quote attributed to Arthur Schopenhauer, and he says. Quote, Every miserable fool who has nothing at all of which he can be proud adopts as a last resource pride in the nation to which he belongs. He is ready and happy to defend it and all its faults and follies tooth and nail, thus reimbursing himself for his own inferiority. Unquote. So, so if you're keeping track and you consider yourself a patriotic person, uh, now apparently you are aiding in the march towards fascism as well as being a miserable fool to boot. So (laughs) there you go. Uh, Again, I I would put that a little bit in the over the top category, but, um, but that's certainly one opinion. Another opinion that I, I wanted to read is, uh, this guy, Paul wrote on Facebook and I'm reading this because, uh, it's, it's as though I wrote it, um, just a couple of weeks ago before I changed my mind on this. And, uh, So I'll I'll read what he has to say and and then tell the story. Paul writes, the argument that patriotism leads to fascism is a logical fallacy. Blind patriotism might in some cases be used by fascists to gain power, but that does not inherently mean patriotism leads to fascism. Quick note, I couldn't possibly agree more with that. He continues, Jay's argument about being thankful rather than proud rings more true, but that does not have anything to do with patriotism patriotism is defined as love and devotion to one's country. As progressives, I would argue that we are the true patriots. We see the faults, but we still love our country. We love it enough to try and make it better. And, uh, and so that is almost word for word exactly the way I described uh, progressives as defining patriotism recently to a friend after I posted the Fourth of July episode, but before any comments had started coming in about it, I I was commenting to a friend of mine who's from Texas, and uh, and it just so happens the Fourth of July is her favorite holiday. And I said, Oh, you, you, you it's impossible you might not want to listen to the show I just posted. I kind of badmouth patriotism a little bit. Uh, but but we got talking about it, and I said, Now the thing is. The the way progressives talk about patriotism is we we always say, you know, to refute the right wing idea that the right wing are the only true patriots and everyone else are you know false Americans who are secretly working against the country. Uh, progressives always say, no no no, we're patriots. Uh, but let me quickly define patriotism for you because it's different than what you think. It's not uh, my team right or wrong. It's I love the country in spite of its uh, faults. But I, I like it anyways, and I'm I'm willing to work to make it better. So I'm actually more patriotic than you, and and so that's almost you know hopefully I didn't uh, quote it wrong or or boil that down in in a way different than than the way Paul meant it, and and so that's what I would have said myself just a, you know a week ago until I heard that Matt Rothschild quote when he was talking about being an anti-patriot, and I realized you know. It's not that I'm patriotic with a slightly different definition. It's that I really just don't believe in patriotism. Um, I, I just, I fundamentally haven't seen the good in it. I, I, there are arguments for why it can possibly be bad, not that it is inherently bad. And But I just haven't heard any good arguments for why it's a really good thing. So maybe that's a follow-up question. If you have an answer to that, I would love to hear it. And so now, just to quickly recap on on what I said before, just in case you missed it, is uh, is is that I do not feel a sense of patriotism towards uh, my country of birth. I I have a feeling of gratitude. I'm incredibly thankful and feel incredibly lucky to have been born in this country. In the exact same way that I would feel incredibly lucky to be born in any first world nation with uh, you know general uh, health and well being maintained and and services provided and so on and so on. So those are my thoughts on that. That'll be it for today. I wanna thank a couple members before I go. Of course, Taylor K signed up for a monthly membership back on uh, March 18th and stuck with the show since then. Thank you very much, Taylor. And Mark O signed up for uh, a membership uh, for a full year starting on May 25th. Uh, Huge thanks to Mark, Taylor, and all the members, of course, who make the show possible everyone listening you're probably aware by now that i do 10 episodes a month and uh, and without the support of the members and donors to the show uh this would just be a hobby for me instead of a job and back when it was a hobby i could only manage to do uh about four episodes a month on a good month you know presuming i didn't have anything uh, get in the way so for everyone who enjoys getting the show 10 times a month uh you've got the members and donors to thank for that of course, everyone can continue to support the show by uh, telling all of your friends and family about it. It makes a huge difference just spreading the word that way. You can stay tuned into the show between episodes and even spread the word online if you like. Uh, we're on Facebook and Twitter. For details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, you can get all of those in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you 10 times a month, as I say, thanks entirely to to the support of the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
5: I find style, black and white So you took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room the shadow bases. the throne you out in the open door. This is not my life, it's just a fond farewell to a friend. It's not what I'm like, it's just a Hi there, it's Mike. Here's another unsolicited moment for the podcast listeners. Some things have changed since I sent my first message to Jay. The main change, more podcasts, 10 a month, and there's the iPod app's the bonus clips divided into different categories for the subscribers, and now Jay has made this podcast his full-time job. Plus, Jay won the Best Produced Podcast of the Year award. By using the Amazon link on the Best of the Left podcast site, you can contribute with every purchase you make at reduced prices on Just About Every thing. At Amazon, you can buy music, downloads, furnish your apartments, fill up your cupboards with linens, food, computer supplies, appliances, and on and on and on. Not just the Amazon DVDs and books. In fact, it's hard to name anything that you can't buy at Amazon. And you're contributing at the same time without paying a penny more. Now, my Social Security retirement check doesn't allow for much shopping, but I still manage to make sure Jay has my $5 subscription month after month. It's great to know that even on a meager income, I'm making a big difference in our world, keeping the Best of the Left podcast going and growing and ensuring progressive concepts are introduced, heard, and passed on. I'm proud to be a part of that, and you will be too. Do your part. Do what you can. Thanks.